Hi there. I'm Sue Elvis from the blog Stories of an Unschooling Family. Welcome to my podcast. This is episode 101. And today I'd like to talk about communication skills. Also, I want to give you an update on our great weight loss adventure. What I have learnt from the experience. And this will lead me into my jigging story, which I promised you a couple of weeks ago. And that will lead me into talking about adult peer pressure and clothes. I have a few stories to share with you and a little bit of news as well. I'm going to start with communication skills. Why have I been thinking about this? Well, my daughter Sophie and my son Duncan both work in the same cafe. While my kids have been telling me what's been going on at work, we have been discussing communication skills. And I just thought I would share my observations with you. Firstly, it seems to us that when you become an employee, it doesn't necessarily mean that you will be treated as an adult. You might not get the same respect as you do at home. This has been a big learning experience for my children. They have gone out there into the bigger world and discovered that not everybody will talk to them with politeness and respect. They have had to learn to deal with such things as a public misbehavior board. It reminds me of primary school. If somebody in the cafe has done something wrong, then that person is supposed to write it on the public misbehavior board. They are shamed into changing their behavior. And that includes accidents and mistakes. There's also a wastage board. If somebody in the kitchen wastes some ingredients, it has to be recorded on the public wastage board. And then there is the message board. If a member of staff wants to let another member of staff know something, if they have a complaint or they would like somebody to take note of something, they write it down and stick it on the public notice board. And they don't have to use very kind words. They can just come out and say it, add a few swear words, just say it as it comes out of their mouths. And all this to us is very unacceptable. We feel that people would work better if they were respected and treated properly. Public shaming doesn't make people want to be part of the team and to do their best. But there's nothing we can do about it. We can hardly go up to the manager and say, hey, I think your methods of treating your staff are completely wrong. You would do better too and then give them some hints. Yeah, trust and respect. Treat people a a little kinder. And so I have been thinking, have I prepared my children for the harsh outside world? Should they have learned some tactics for dealing with this kind of behavior? Should they be able to give as good as they get? Well, I certainly think they have to learn how to deal with this. Maybe they have to stand up for themselves and say, hey, I don't think that I deserve to be treated in that way. And I think they should certainly not adopt these methods of communication themselves. Even if it is hard on them, they have to do the right thing. Now, I don't really blame people for having poor communication skills. For most people, they aren't taught these skills by their parents or at school. And I am thinking of myself as a perfect example. I used to have horrendous communication skills. And I must admit that my communication skills still aren't perfect. The only difference is I realize that I have to have better communication skills and I'm continually working on them. 
trying to be a good example for my kids and to pass on all the things that I have learnt. So when did I realise that I wasn't a good communicator? Probably when my second child was a baby. I used to belong to a breastfeeding support group. In those days it was called Nursing Mothers. I think nowadays it's called Australia's Breastfeeding Association. I wanted to be a breastfeeding counsellor, so I applied and I was accepted onto the course. I found out that I would have to learn not only all the breastfeeding knowledge, how breastfeeding works and all the problems and the answers to those problems, but I would also have to learn how to give that knowledge to a mother in the right way. We can't tell anybody what to do. We were taught that a mother has to be in charge of her problem. I learned about empathy, how we have to make a connection with the person that we are trying to help. They have to feel that we understand where they are, where they're coming from, what they need. If a mother doesn't feel that connection with us, she's going to say, hey, she doesn't understand, and she won't listen to anything we have to offer. She's going to go elsewhere. And then there was listening skills. I had to learn how to listen very carefully so that I could find out what the exact problem was. Because sometimes I had to dig a little bit deeper. The problem wasn't always obvious. Or I might have thought it was one problem, but with careful questioning, I actually found out it was a totally different problem. And then, as I said, I had to find the right words to give the right information to the mother. Give it to her in such a way that she felt she had a choice, that I wasn't telling her what to do. I was going to support her in her decision, whatever that decision was. There were other skills I learnt as well, like summing up what we were talking about so that a mother could come to a decision. But anyway, I soon found out that I didn't have any of these skills. I think the very first topic that I had to study was listening skills. As I was listening to the counsellor who was leading the group, all I could think about was how I never listened to my husband Andy. He'd come home from work, eager to tell me about his day, and my eyes would just glaze over, and I wouldn't really listen. I'd be thinking about something else entirely. I would just say yes, 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 and then really I was waiting for an opportunity to tell him about my day. Very poor listening skills indeed. I also didn't have much empathy. I never put myself in other people's shoes because I assumed they'd be feeling exactly like me. I didn't make that extra effort to look at things from their point of view. The whole experience of becoming a breastfeeding counsellor did teach me a lot about communication skills and how important these skills are. And I've been trying to pass on these skills to my kids. Sometimes we talk directly about them but I think the most effective way our kids can learn communication skills is following our example. I think it's really hard to be that good example. Good communication doesn't always come easily. Sometimes we just want to open our mouths and let the words fall out any old how. It takes a lot of effort to think before we speak. But I do think that we have to do this. We have to be kind and we have to be effective as well. We don't want to get into conflict with other people. We want to show other people that we value them, that it is worth listening to them, that we want to see things from their point of view. 
It's not all about us. Now, good communication skills aren't just important for dealing with people outside the family. I think they are essential for getting on with our kids. We need, for example, to listen to our kids. And I have already spoken about this in a previous podcast. Episode 60. And good communication skills are important when we're talking to other people about unschooling. Unschoolers have a lot of critics. How do we deal with criticism? Do we just ignore it? Do we fight it? Or do we try and build a bridge between us and our critics so that we can have a fruitful discussion? In episode 65, I talked about dealing with our fears and the critical comments of other people. So I don't want to repeat everything I said in those two podcasts, but I would like to share some examples of empathy today. How empathy makes such a difference. Now, you might know that our son Thomas died almost 18 years ago. That experience was very difficult. It was made even more difficult by the lack of empathy of people that were around us. So many people didn't know what to say to us. What do you say when somebody has lost a baby? People would cross over the street if they saw me coming towards them so that they didn't have to say anything to me. I even had the experience of being at various gatherings and people would just look at me. They wouldn't actually say a word to me. They would just stare at me when they thought I wasn't looking. I tried to understand where they were coming from. I wondered if I would have been any better if I was in their situation. Would I have had the right skills to talk to somebody who was grieving? And probably I wouldn't have had those skills. I always wonder why it is so difficult for people to put themselves in the shoes of other people and imagine. What would we want somebody to do if we were in that situation? Even if we haven't had the experience, we can imagine. And things might not happen quite as they are in our imagination, but at least we try. Because sometimes when we try and show empathy, we do get it wrong. We might say to somebody, you must be so disappointed. And they might say, no, I'm not disappointed. It's more like worry. I'm a bit worried. But at least we have tried, and I think that's all we need to do. Yes, all we need to do is try and imagine what somebody else is feeling and reflect that feeling back to them. Going back to that period of grief, I have a wonderful friend who helped me through the grieving process. I don't know what I would have done without her. She showed me great empathy. She listened very carefully. She made suggestions in a way that I could accept, that I could listen to. She reassured me. She always made me feel that I wasn't a nuisance, that she would be there for me for as long as it took. I would like to share a little bit of a story that I wrote about this friend. I'm not going to share it all, just the middle section. I think you will like my friend. Her name is Sarah. I remember when I surprised Sarah. I guess it wasn't a pleasant surprise at all. Many friends would have drawn back and not wanted to be involved. They would have run away from the surprise. But not Sarah. She embraces readily what comes her way, especially when a friend is in need. One morning, Sarah opened her front door to find a crying woman with five sad-looking children huddled behind her. It was me. Sarah, there is something wrong with our baby, I howled. He's going to die. Now, Sarah isn't the type of woman to panic. 
I was ushered into the house, given a box of tissues together with a cup of tea. Sarah gave me her full attention, and soon I was sharing my heart-breaking story. Between the tears, I managed to tell Sarah how I'd been for an ultrasound the previous day. The baby has a diaphragmatic hernia. All the baby's internal organs have moved through the hole. There won't be room for his lungs to grow. No lungs, no ability to breathe independently. He would die. A huge sob arose from the depths of my being at the thought. Soon I had a lap full of sodden tissues, and soon the tissue box was empty. I followed Sarah into the kitchen to deposit the soggy lumps in the garbage bin, and then I noticed it. I noticed the table carefully set with the best crockery and glassware and cutlery. Sarah was expecting guests for lunch. I'd better be going, I said to Sarah. You're having visitors. But Sarah wouldn't hear of me leaving. She couldn't bear the thought of me being on my own while I came to terms with my sorrowful news. She invited us to stay and join her for lunch. Now Sarah didn't rush out the door for more supplies. She didn't start frantically searching the cupboards for more food. She didn't panic as I would have done if I suddenly had six unexpected extra guests to feed. She remained calm. Soon the doorbell rang. Sarah went to the door and greeted her parents. We all sat around the table. Like the loaves and fishes, the food must have multiplied itself because there was plenty for everyone. Not that I had much appetite. I was doing more crying than eating. Sarah's mum and dad were marvellous. They showed no surprise that their intimate family lunch had been hijacked by a red-eyed crying woman and her five children. They chatted away to me, ignoring the tears and the tissues and the gulps I made as I tried to keep the crying under control. They looked like they were used to dining with grief-stricken mothers. Years later, I wonder what they could have been thinking, but their faces, at the time, betrayed nothing. They were very gracious. Sarah was a lifeline through the next five months of pregnancy. We spent hours on the phone while she listened, and I cried and I poured out my heart. Thomas was born, and yes, he didn't have much lung tissue. He lived twenty-eight hours on life support equipment before dying gently and quietly in our arms. Sarah and her husband Sean and their family came to the funeral together with all our other friends and their children. I was overwhelmed to see the church packed as we farewelled our little son. Later at the wake, as we were preparing to go home, I thought about Andy returning to work in a few days' time. I thought about being at home alone with my sorrow, and I said, "Sarah, can I come and visit you sometime?" For months, I journeyed down to the farm, to the safe haven of my dear friend's home, where I knew I'd be enfolded with love and understanding and compassion. On one of these early visits, I remember saying, "It's been three weeks, Sarah. It's not getting any better. In fact, it's getting worse." But Sue, three weeks is such a short time, and instead of feeling a nuisance for constantly wanting to visit and talk, I felt I could keep coming and I could keep talking for as long as I needed, even if that time stretched out into months, and the months turned into years. And I did continue. Visiting Sarah for a long time, and that's the end of the piece I want to share with you today. There are a few words there that caught my attention as I was reading. 
I knew I'd be enfolded with love and understanding and compassion. Isn't that what we want to show all people? Our children, our friends, all people that we come in contact with. And we can do that if we do have good communication skills. Maybe it isn't enough just to love, because sometimes we do love, but people don't realize it. We don't know how to tell people, how to show people. Certainly going through our own difficult times increases our compassion for other people. And so I feel very grateful for all I have learnt. As I said, I still have more to learn. But as long as we try, I think that's the main thing. I often talk to Sophie about communication skills. She asks me questions. Mom, how do I respond to this email in the right way? She might have something she wants to tell somebody else, and she'll ask me the right way to tell it. And so we will brainstorm ideas together. Quite often people will blame the internet for our lack of communication skills. But I look at that differently. I think that the internet gives us many, many opportunities of practicing our communication skills. Yes, we could just rush in and write comments without thinking, and a lot of people do this, especially when they are disagreeing with somebody. We've all seen very heated discussions going on on Facebook where people get hurt, people unfriend each other. But we don't have to react in a defensive or an angry way. We can try and see the other person's point of view, and we can compose our words very carefully. It might take us a long time to compose a comment. Sometimes I sit there fiddling around with words, moving them around, choosing different ones until I am satisfied, and then I'll hit enter. But always it is worth it. And as Sophie said, the more we try and put compassion and understanding and empathy into our comments, the easier it gets to write them. It becomes second nature to us. The habits we build up writing to people overflow into our speech. We're not so inclined to just let words fall from our mouths. We stop and think. Of course there are times when we get it wrong, but as I said, it's the trying that counts, not perfection. Getting involved in heated debates on Facebook. That reminds me that often we have discussions with our children about things that we wanted them to take on board. We want to share our experiences with them. Maybe they have a different opinion to us. What is the best way to talk about these things? With respect, with empathy, with understanding, with kindness and politeness. If we treat our kids this way when we're talking to them, I think they are more inclined to listen to what we have to say. And also when we listen to them and put ourselves in their place, often we learn from them. They are different people from us. They have their own ideas. Sometimes that's quite okay. Next, I want to give you an update on our weight loss, our calorie counting. About three podcasts ago, I was telling you how we are all trying to lose a bit of weight. Imogen, Sophie and I, we bought ourselves some iFit Views, which are bands that go around our wrists a little bit like Fitbits. And as I said, we've been calorie counting and also tracking our steps and our exercise burn. Keeping an eye on what's going into our bodies and how we're burning it up. 
I said a few weeks ago that I didn't know how long I could keep calorie counting. And I have to tell you that I've given up on that. It was just too difficult. But Sophie and Imogen are still logging their calories. But even though I haven't been doing that, I have been watching what I've been eating. And I choose my foods in accordance with Sophie's guidelines. When somebody says to me, Mom, what would you like for lunch? I usually say, well, what will Sophie let me have? Or I'll choose something that Sophie approves of. Calorie counting has taught me a lot. It has taught me about the calorific values of different foods, what is worth eating and what's not worth bothering with. Sophie has been finding new recipes for us, and this has been really good. We've been enjoying the food. I have discovered that there is no reason to feel hungry while we're losing weight. All we have to do is eat the right foods. And if we choose those foods carefully, what we're eating can still be a pleasure. I've also discovered that it is much easier to eat calories than it is to burn them off. Exercise doesn't burn off as many calories as we might imagine. And I found out that we have to have a plan if we're eating out. Yes, we can have a pot of tea instead of a cappuccino, for example. But what are we going to eat instead of that lovely finger bun or that piece of chocolate cake? We soon discovered that we had to have some alternatives ready because it's so easy just to fall back on what we're used to. Sophie and I discovered a section in the supermarket that sells healthy food bars. Bars made out of things like dates and cashews and coconut and maybe even some dark chocolate. Of course, we've had to read all the labels very carefully because some health food bars aren't really very healthy. But we have discovered a good brand in a variety of flavors. And if we're out shopping and we want to stop for morning tea, what we usually do is we hop into the supermarket first, buy a few of these food bars, and then go and order ourselves a pot of tea, sit at the tables in the shopping center, and enjoy our tea and our treat, knowing that we're not going to be eating that many calories and what we're eating is delicious. So how are we getting on? Is our new diet and exercise plan working? Well, we have discovered that Sophie has to eat more. By counting her calories, we have discovered that she's not eating enough. She exercises quite a lot. And so we have to force her to eat more. But that's not Imogen's and my problem. Now, we have been watching our weight now for about four and a half weeks. At the four-week mark, Imogen weighed herself and she found out that she has lost two and a half kilos. Isn't that wonderful? Now, how much have I lost? Well, I don't know, because I still haven't got brave enough to get on the scales. But I can tell you that my jiggings are fitting much more comfortably. I should tell you that jigging story, shouldn't I? But to tell you that story, I have to go back a few years and talk about clothes in general. And this is where adult peer pressure comes into it. If jeggings had been invented when I was a teenager and a young person in my 20s, I probably would have worn them without thinking about it. Because I used to be a jeans person. Jeans and a t-shirt and a jumper and some comfortable shoes or some boots. That was my uniform. All during my teenage years and even up to the time when I was a young mother. I thought nothing of it. These were comfortable clothes. Everybody my age were wearing them. The jeans were functional, practical. I liked wearing them. And then one day, I had an experience which changed my mind about jeans. I wrote a story about this called, I am a skirt girl. 
I am a skirt girl. I haven't always been a skirt girl. Once upon a time, I used to wear jeans, the real tight ones, the ones you'd have to lie down on the floor to zip up. It's a good job I was a little thinner in those days and didn't mind the pain. My mother would have said, "No sense, no feeling." She might have been right, but that was in my salad days when I was green in judgment. I once went to a Catholic family's picnic in a pair of jeans. I thought, "Picnic, jeans." It seemed to make sense until the moment I arrived and discovered I was the only woman not wearing a skirt. Have you ever been in that sort of situation? It's very uncomfortable. No wonder I never attended another picnic in jeans. Next time I thought, "Picnic skirt." I wasn't too happy about giving up my jeans. I rather liked my faded old comfortable friends. They were easy to wear, especially since I'd given up buying the really tight ones. A pair of jeans and a t-shirt or a jumper. How easy. I didn't have to think. Stress-free dressing. I guess I could have been brave and continued being the only woman dressed in jeans, but I wanted to be liked and accepted. I would probably have been liked and accepted anyway, but I didn't take the risk. I didn't really want to stand out from the crowd, so jeans became my at-home wear only. And I just hoped I didn't get an unexpected visitor. Fancy getting caught wearing a pair of jeans. Somewhere along the line, I stopped slipping into my comfy jeans, even when all alone. Did I grow too fat for them? No, it wasn't that. I think I just began to like my skirts. I liked feeling feminine. Skirts don't have to be frumpish. They come in dozens of different fabrics, hundreds of styles and colors, various lengths, thousands of patterns. They can be casual and comfortable, soft and floaty, dressed up and sophisticated. Skirts make me feel like a woman, and they can be fun. Yes, other people can make us change our behavior. As I said, I did discover that skirts were fun. That I like skirts, but I didn't decide for myself that I wanted to wear skirts. I did it because of adult peer pressure. I wanted to be accepted. Into a group of women who didn't wear jeans. I sometimes wonder about adult peer pressure. We don't really have to give in to it. Could sometimes what we perceive not actually be the truth? Maybe those women would have been quite happy to have been my friend, even if I wore jeans. Perhaps I was being a little bit too sensitive. Maybe we all feel a little bit insecure. It's easier to go with the crowd to do what everybody else is doing. We know that way we will be accepted. It's hard to go out on a limb and do something different. But ultimately, going with the crowd got me into trouble with my own children, and this is why I think it is important not to bow to adult peer pressure, but to do instead what is best for our own families. Even if we lose friendships, it's better to do that than it is. To ruin the relationships with our own children. Now, I did nearly ruin the relationship with my eldest daughter, Felicity, over clothes. It was a big issue. I wrote about it in a story called "When a Parent Makes a Teenager's Life Unnecessarily Difficult," and it was really hard to write this story to admit to the mistakes that I had made with my teenage daughter. Mum, can I wear jeans? 
My teenage daughter Felicity looks at me with pleading eyes. She must know what I'm going to say. I've said it so many times before. Jeans are unfeminine. You're a girl. You should wear a skirt. When Felicity was a little younger, clothes weren't an issue. She had dresses and pants and jeans, and she wore whatever suited the occasion. I didn't think too much about it. Then we moved house, and I made some new friends. They introduced me to some new ideas. Girls are different to boys. They should look like girls and act like girls. Yes, girls are different to boys. I agree. I listened some more and observed. Other mothers were dressing their girls in skirts and dresses. Some weren't allowing their girls to participate in boyish activities like soccer. I really liked these women. I wanted to belong to their group. I wanted them to like me in return, to approve of me, and to accept my family. So I adopted their way of doing things. So Felicity wasn't allowed to wear jeans or join in with soccer games with the boys. Instead, she stood on the sidelines, yearning to kick the ball with all the other kids. Occasionally, Felicity would defy me. She'd sneak off when I wasn't watching and play soccer anyway. Hey, your daughter Felicity is a powerful kicker. Someone would later tell me, not realizing his words would get her into trouble. What were you doing playing soccer? I'd angrily ask my daughter. Soccer, jeans. Did it really matter if Felicity pulled on a pair of jeans and kicked a ball with the boys? I have to admit, jeans and soccer weren't the real issue, though I pretended they were. I only adopted the standards of the other mothers in order to be accepted into the group. I bowed to adult peer pressure instead of listening to my own child and making decisions more appropriate for my own family. If I'd encouraged Felicity to participate in sporting activities she enjoyed. Would this have prevented her inactive lifestyle of later years? If I hadn't had constant battles with her over her clothes, would she have felt better about her appearance? Would she never have written the following words in a blog post? I also took my rising desire to prove myself as individual, to have different looks and hobbies and interests to my mum's as a very bad thing. I felt guilty about wanting to be different. So I would take any criticism of my appearance or interests very badly. Would I have made the life of my child, who was suffering from undiagnosed mental illness, just a little bit easier? Maybe a healthy child would have felt resentment because of my rules. It seems my child ended up feeling bad. I don't really think it matters whether a teenager is normal. Or has special needs, we should avoid battling with them over unimportant things. What were those words of a recent mass reading? Parents, do not lead your children to resentment. Perhaps we should be prepared to trust and accept, rather than constantly control our young people. We should value their own opinions and who they are. They don't have to be just like us. And they certainly don't have to conform to the ideas of our friends. These days, I try not to let adult peer pressure affect what is best for my family, but I admit it's not always easy. I wonder why. Why are we so influenced by the opinions of others? There's a lot of talk about modesty and femininity on the internet. A lot of mothers who care very much about their girls do make clothes rules. And every time I see a blog post on this topic, and I look at all the comments congratulating the mother on making such rules, I wonder 
Will that mother have problems in the future? Rules aren't the way to go. We can't control our young people by making rules. All we can do is make a connection with our children, so that they will value our opinion, that they will talk to us, that we can share our values. The other thing is that we have to look at what we're trying to impart to our children. Are we battling over things which are very unimportant? And I think clothes come under this heading. My four youngest girls are very feminine. They like wearing dresses. Sophie wears jeans to work because that is the uniform: a pair of jeans and a check shirt. But for everyday wear, my girls don't wear jeans, and it's not because I have a rule. They just don't want to. I don't want to wear jeans either now, but we all like comfy clothes. I do like how jeans are stress-free. How you can do anything in a pair of jeans, as long as they're not too tight, of course. So this is where the jeggings comes into my story. We discovered jeggings. I don't know how long ago, maybe a year or two ago. At first, when they became fashionable, we looked at them and thought of them. As we would jeans, who would want to wear such tight garments? But then we discovered that if you match a pair of jeggings up with a long tunic, you have a wonderful outfit. Tunics can be very feminine. They come in all sorts of different styles, different fabrics. They float, they squirrel, they're comfortable. Stick a pair of jeggings under them, and as I said, you have a perfect outfit. So my girls were converted to jeggings quite early, but still I didn't think that jeggings suited me. I'm too old for jeggings, I thought. But the girls said, "Hey, mom, jeggings are good." So I got a couple of pairs. I brought them home. I tried them on. Well, it was hard to get them on. I came out once I'd done a lot of wriggling, and I said to Imogen, "I think I bought the wrong size, Imogen. I bought my usual size, small or size ten." And she said, "Mum, don't worry. You've got the perfect size. Jeggings give as you wear them. Once you've washed them a few times, they'll be easier to get into." And she was quite right. But still, I guess with an extra kilo or so around my middle, my jeggings were feeling a little bit tight. But I can tell you now that they feel a whole lot more comfortable. So it's quite all right for older mothers to wear jeggings, as long as you put something over the top of them, like a long tunic. We find it very easy to find long tunics because we're all very short, so usually we can turn tunics into dresses. One more thing about adult peer pressure: I think we feel this when we're unschooling. When we look at other people's unschooling blogs, maybe, or we are discussing something in a forum, and we feel that we have to accept what somebody else is telling us so that we fit in, so that we're not criticized. And I think this is the wrong thing to do. We shouldn't bow to somebody else's opinion just because we are told to. We have to do what is right for our own family, regardless of what other people are telling us. Of course, we may change our minds along the way. We may adopt the opinion of other people, but if we don't feel comfortable doing that straight away, that's quite all right. So all I have left to tell you is a little bit of news. 
the music video that I was talking about last week, the one we filmed a couple of weeks ago, it is now on Imogen's YouTube channel. She is singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And as my husband Andy said when he watched the video for the first time a night or so ago, he said that he thinks that the song is a perfect match for her voice. So I hope you'll hop over to YouTube and have a look. I hope you agree with Andy's opinion. I also made a video the other day, another animation. What's my unschooling blog all about? It's only 39 seconds long, and I made it using the GoAnimate software program. Had a lot of fun doing that on Sunday afternoon. I found a piece of music by Poddington Bear called Glass Slipper. It has a Creative Commons license. Poddington Bear's music can be used by anybody for any purpose as long as it's not a commercial project. So I have used a lot of his music in my videos. So that video is on my blog, also on Facebook and YouTube. So I invite you to go and have a look at that. As I said, it's only 39 seconds long and it's a bit of fun. And the last piece of news I have is about collaboration. The other day I wrote a blog post called If We Collaborate, Could We Light a Gentle Unschooling Fire? Helen Keller once said, Alone we can do so little, together we can do so much. And I know this because of what I do with my daughters. We're always working together on our various projects. We share ideas, we elaborate on those ideas, extend them, talk about them, uh, yes, put them into action. Share all our various talents. Without each other, we wouldn't achieve nearly as much. We also wouldn't have as much fun either. So a family can collaborate. Siblings can work together. Parents can work with their children. But I've been thinking about unschoolers collaborating. What if a group of unschooling bloggers got together, or unschooling podcasters, or vloggers, or even readers who are willing to write guest posts? Could we work together to spread the unschooling message? Two people are always better than one. Can we share our skills, our ideas, our individual ways of spreading the unschooling message? Could we support each other and encourage each other in this mission? That's the idea behind my blog post. And so far, I've had quite a few people stop by either my blog or my Facebook page, and also a couple of people sent me a message saying, yes, they would be interested in collaborating with me as I spread the unschooling message. So this could be a very exciting project. So are you passionate about speaking or writing about unschooling? Would you be interested in working with me and other people? If you haven't got a blog or a YouTube channel or a podcast, would you be interested in writing guest posts? Because I would be really happy to share other people's articles on my blog. So I invite you to go over to my blog and have a look at that post. If we collaborate, could we light a gentle unschooling fire? A gentle unschooling fire gentle because that's the approach that appeals to me the most. An unschooling fire. Why fire? Well, I found a quote from Louisa May Alcott. It takes two flints to make a fire. So, would you like to be a flint? If you would, you could leave a comment on my blog or send me a message on Facebook or contact me by email. 
I have just put a contact page on my blog to make it easier for people to connect with me. Just look in my sidebar, you'll see where it says email me. So I think that's all I want to share with you today. Thinking back through this podcast, I wonder if what I have said is a bit disjointed. I seem to do that an awful lot. I hope that some of what I have said makes sense. Maybe we could talk more about it in the comments section of my blog or in further podcasts. I guess topics like communication skills can't really be adequately talked about in only a few minutes. I didn't really want to give a lesson in communication skills. Rather, I wanted just to bring up the topic and talk about how important it is to have these skills and to get us all thinking about them. If you have any experiences or ideas of your own, I would love to hear them. So I have come to the end of episode 101. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you have a wonderful unschooling week. And until next time, remember to trust, respect, and love unconditionally. Thank you.